0: So today in American Conversations, uh, Todd Wood um, and I have invited um, our old boss and a good friend and colleague in the business um, for decades, John Solomon, who's the publisher and editor in chief of Justin News that is now going on its second year. John, congratulations on that. I mean thank you.
1: You guys are doing before. work. And congratulations with all you guys are doing. Uh, well,
0: well you. you know, you're you're taking on the Russians and we're taking we're we're taking we're taking on Fauci. Yeah.
1: <laughs> in many a lot ways. Taking on. There's no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah,
0: I mean it is taking on. But anyways, you know what happened this week I thought was was kind of interesting. You you had done um an investigative piece. On the legality of covid its definitions the vaccines you yeah. posted it you posted it on your twitter account and then vada boom you're now again part of the cancer culture so yeah. tell us the backstory editorially on what happened you know
1: listen we thought this was an important issue because a federal judge raised it in one of the lawsuits challenging vaccine mandates which is there are basically two versions of the pfizer uh, vaccine in the marketplace, the one that was uh, originally uh, produced and approved under what's known as emergency order. And that has different uh, liability protections. It also has different legal interpretations for what a right. government can and can't do. For instance, an emergency ordered vaccine cannot be mandated under current law. So uh, the judge was working through this case and notice that while the FDA has given a more thorough approval now to a market ready version of the Pfizer vaccine, The old vaccine is still in the marketplace because Pfizer has a lot of it left over. And why waste it? Because it could go to good use. We just pointed out that that was going on. Pfizer gave us an on the record statement that we accurately quoted. Pfizer's never had a problem with our story. And we said, listen, there are just two versions of the marketplace and they come with different legal protections and different legal requirements. For instance, if you're getting the emergency order one, Someone can't mandate that you get that one. They can. They may be able to mandate the new one, uh, the market-ready one. And that's all we did. It, we didn't think this was going to be controversial at all. The story went out two or three days later. Everything was fine. And then I woke up, I think it was a, a, a story, Tuesday morning, and right. I was blocked out of my Twitter account and cool. said I had done something that was unsafe and potentially harmful to the American public.
2: So, John, um, we've been deplatformed, I think, on last count, 15 different Silicon Valley platforms, payment systems, everything. But it, it is the uh, BioNTech version actually available in the US market? I mean, I think you rather accidentally or purposely stumbled onto the, the big truth here.
1: So the answer is it's in places, but it's still Mm -hmm. not being distributed because the older vaccine has -hmm. an expiration date out. And according to Pfizer, they want to make use of that. So Mm -hmm. it's in the pipeline. It could go out. We don't know of any places that are currently using it. Mm -hmm. Most of the doctors and states and pharmacies we talked to said we're still running down the earlier supply, but it is Mm -hmm. in the pipeline. It's ready to go. And I think this is really just a case of Pfizer not wanting to waste Vaccines Mm -hmm. that one cost a lot of money to buy and supply and make and also that could get out to the marketplace quicker. And so Mm -hmm. that's what's going on. And, you know, people make their own personal decisions about a vaccine. But legally, there are distinctions between the two. And that was really the only point of the story. Nothing nothing more nefarious than that. Mm -hmm.
0: So how long are you supposed to be suspended for?
1: So I've been put back on. It was a 12-hour timeout. I feel like uh, my mother put me on the timeout. I'm back (laughs) on. And what we've done, you know, there's a lot of ways to approach this. You can go out and and play the martyr and whine on television. What I decided to do is to do what I did when I unraveled the Russia collusion story, which is people said it wasn't true, but show me the facts. And so I went out and got the facts. So what we've done is we've written to uh, Twitter executives and said to them, listen, here's what we wrote. Here are the facts. We've asked 10 epidemiologists who are some of the premier voices in all of America uh, to evaluate our story. All 10 said this story is 100% accurate. We think maybe you did this by algorithm or some person made a mistake and didn't read the full story. Would you reconsider into our, uh, while my timeouts expired already, we don't want the black mark on our record and we don't wanna have to have someone call something unsafe that's a true story. Mm -hmm. So we have found a receptive audience. We aren't resolved yet. But Twitter said, you know what, we ought to take a look at what you're saying. You make a very thoughtful case. So we're in conversations with Twitter, and hopefully sometime in the next 24 hours, they'll do the right thing and say, we made a mistake. That was an error. That story's fine. We shouldn't have marked it. Uh, Our feeling from our reporting on this is that an algorithm flagged it at the headline level. No one bothered to read the story. And once we got the story in front of Twitter, I think we're getting more calm and reasoned voices. And I wouldn't be surprised if we woke up tomorrow and found out that Twitter had turned around and said this was a mistake.
0: How far up the food chain did you have to go to those calmer voices?
1: Well, we tried to get, you know try to get to the director of news for Twitter because that guy has a news sense. That's his job is to evaluate news. Uh, and uh, I, I, to our credit, even though it's a holiday week, I think we found a receptive audience. I didn't write a stinging, missile email saying, you bozos, why'd you do this? I said, listen, I'm a journalist. I like to stick to facts. I'm sure you want to get this right too. Would you at least just consider looking at our facts? Here are all the facts. Here's the 10 people we talked to. Here's what Pfizer said. They're comfortable with it. Right. And they were very open to it. And uh, hopefully a good resolution for both parties. Because I'm Twitter should be right. We should be right. And I hope we'll get to a good resolution. But it does remind us about something that we're living in. We're living in an era now where fact checking is occurring, sometimes with machine language. Sometimes with kids who have no journalism experience, don't have anything like what the three of us have put into the profession of journalism. And they're making calls sometimes on emotion uh, or computing or, uh, or inexperience. And I think this uh, fact-checking thing, which by the way, fact-checking when done right can be a great public service, but in what done wrong, it is the ultimate tool of improper censorship. And I think we're stumbling onto something. You've got NewsGuard, you've got PolitiFact, you've got Twitter, Facebook, Reuters, AP, all claiming they're doing fact-checking in the social space. That's great if they get it right, but if they get it wrong and they flag meaningful stories um, and, and prevent the public from having an honest debate, then they've done the opposite. They've actually harmed democracy. I think 2022 is going to be the year where these fact checkers get a proctology exam. I think it's time for us <laughs> to look at them and say, are you doing the job the way it was done in the 1990s when Christine and I were working in politics? And, and there was a you know great people like the Annenberg Center doing reasonable, thoughtful, nonpartisan fact checking. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but I think 2022 is a year where a reckoning occurs for some of these what I would call uh, rookie
0: or uh, amateur uh, fact-checking operations. Ooh. You know, one of the one of the overlooked and under-reporting stories, and I, I've been talking about it now because because I've become uh, pleasantly and journalistically obsessed with um, pushing <laughs> the story out there that these vaccine shots, first of all, are not real vaccines, and second of all, when Fauci's people had said to me that the Vax injured were urban legends. I said, okay, fine, Todd, let's put these people's faces out there. Cause I had done a lot of the the interviews with them off camera. And it's interesting to me that when they say that these people don't exist, that people that we know in our business, that shouldn't, that actually know better when they say that there was, you know, there was no history of vaccine discussions in the news business. That's just not true. Phil Donahue built an empire of daytime programming on the discussion of vaccines. Sure. Mike Wallace, 60 Minutes, Katie Couric. I mean, it's almost like people, and, and Katie Couric and I started in the business at the same time. It's almost like people forget the history of our industry, but we have people in our industry on cable mainstream press that actually know better and they're old enough to know what the truth is and their archives can prove it.
1: Yeah. You Listen, know? your old employer at CNN, uh, I, I watched CNN and trusted it for decades and knew great journalists who worked there. Some who I worked with the Associated Press and then went over there and right. they were solid journalists. They didn't come in with an agenda. They came in with the hope of getting the facts and getting them out to the American people. Today, CNN's ratings are in the tank for one reason and one reason. Only. They s- squandered all the trust they had because they played politics with the news. And there are three places where we should never play politics, never in medicine and science. It's dangerous to play it there. And I think we've seen a lot of politicalization there never in the news media because our founding fathers intended democracy to succeed with a news media that could be trusted on the facts. And then we can interpret the facts differently, but at least we'd all start with the same general set of facts. And I think in the military, those are the security apparatus. And in the last five years, All three of those institutions, Fauci, NIH institution, the security institutions, the FBI, the intelligence community, and the news media have all fallen prey to politics. And their trust from the American people have waned as a result. This is – 2022, I think, is the year where there is a boomerang and a rebound, not not in criticism because the criticism has been there for three or four years now, but in actual people realizing and saying the pain to our ratings – pain to our reputation at the FBI, the pain to our reputation at the NIH is too great. People aren't listening to us and treating us seriously anymore. We have to fix ourselves. I think 2022 year could, could be a year of a little bit of reckoning and self-reflection that hadn't and should have occurred, but never happened during the Trump years.
2: Do you think the national security state is one of those? Oh, language. absolutely.
1: Listen, anyone who tells you that the guys who were working the uh, Russia case didn't have politics in their mind, hasn't read the text messages, mm-hmm. hasn't read yeah. the emails. Listen, there is a, an email between Andy McCabe, the deputy director of the FBI, who, you know, I did a lot of work and I was the person who exposed the fact that his wife had met with Terry McAuliffe and got the donation and got that to a FOIA record request. There's He's talking to one of the, um, British counterparts in law enforcement in Great Britain in the summer of 16, right after Brexit passed. And he makes a comment in the email. I don't remember the exact quote, but something is like, God, I hope that doesn't happen here. Meaning I hope Trump doesn't get elected. You don't want the deputy director of the FBI who might have to serve that next president saying that to a foreign power or to anyone, someone down in. You look at Pete Strzok and and Lisa Page and so many of those text messages are painful to read because we expect our FBI to be above politics. They're the referees that don't take bribes and don't fall prey to politics. And so absolutely, the security policy. And so think about all the people who signed a letter saying the Hunter Biden laptop was uh, a Russian disinformation right. campaign. It's not true. It never was true. There was no evidence when they signed that letter. These are people that were CIA directors, and NSA yeah. directors. Where did they get that information from? Well, it came from their political minds, not their fact-based minds. And I think all of those examples have uh, lowered Americans' trust in institutions that we've long trusted. And I think 2022 is a year where I think those institutions are beginning to realize, you know what? We've endured too much damage to our brand. People aren't taking us seriously anymore. When FBI agents show up and people say, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Or if I'm talking to you, I, you better record me because if I don't have a recording, I don't trust you. That hinders the FBI's ability to do investigation. They have to get over that. And I, those are stories that I hear from agents. I, agents say, like, five years ago, I go to someone. They wanted to cooperate. They go, oh, I don't want to cooperate now. You might make some false allegation about me and ring me up online like you did with Mike Flynn. Those are the sort of things that uh, institutionally start to have a consequence and I think are beginning to create a moment of self-reflection.
2: What does it look like when the, when we have some accountability in the U S military and in the national security apparatus? I mean, you talk, you know, we've both been involved in Ukraine and what's been going on over there. We, I think a lot of the stuff that's happening here was practiced in Ukraine and and, sure. And, and, and perfected uh, the whole, you know, Color revolution, all of that. Um, how do we hold those people accountable? What does it look like for you know the the Secretary of Defense and the generals at the academies that are you know forcing Marxism on their students? H- how do you hold those people accountable?
1: It's a great question, right? I I think ultimately the voters do, and and a change of leadership is the first way that American voters can affect change. And you saw how much change occurred in 2017 when Donald Trump came into power. And then you also saw the other party do things that really had never been imagined in American politics, like trying to get a bogus investigation started at the FBI and then sustain it through the courts and Congress when they knew the core information they had had been disproven, that there was no evidence of a crime, no evidence of a crime Mm -hmm. involving collusion. Um, I think John Durham is one of those solutions. I think what Ooh. Sally Busby just did at the Washington Post, correcting 12 stories after the fact, that only not only did something for the Washington Post, it, it sent a message to those intelligence people who anonymously gave that crap to the Washington Post that wasn't true mm-hmm. and said, hey, you're not going to get away with this anymore. We're going to reverse our stories. Ooh. I wish the New York Times had the courage, but Dean Bacay seems to hide behind the gray old lady and doesn't fix stories that we know to be wrong. But I think, what Sally Busby did. I think what John Durham is beginning to do. uh, And then I think what the American people say at the polls in 2022 and 2024. those are the biggest self-corrections. What does it look like when we're done? I think you go back to, you know, 1999 or 2000 and 2001, you know, the military got through the 9-11 crisis and that was a major crisis. And we all came together and we we didn't have a political agenda. We had a national security agenda. And I think we know how to run our military without the politics. We just haven't been running it that way for the last four or five years. Cool.
0: John, do, do you see that, the, I, I guess the the question is, do you, do you see how people can get their heads out of cement in terms of the fear of COVID to get back to reality? Because I take a look at, you know, in the last, what is it, four or five days, people lining up for tests, that a lot of them are false positive. Okay, we know this to be true. We know a lot of these tests are not supposed to be used for COVID. The guy who created it said that before he died. Um, we have more doctors and nurses that are coming out. I mean, my fear is that Americans are waking up, but if the world doesn't wake up, you know, I mean, this, this is such a global fight in terms of truth. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, my fear is, can we can we take it can we take it over the finish line as journalists when we uh, so many people inside our business are not telling the truth? Yeah, listen,
1: Alex Berenson tried to tell the truth and he got silenced every way imaginable, and and That's I right. think that that is a sign. But I see right now a moment of self correction in the electorate, not in my profession yet. Uh, not in the Truth Watchers yet, although maybe Twitter will prove me wrong tomorrow, and we'll have a good right. story to tell. Yeah. But um, I think in the American public, there is a fascinating poll that just came out this week from Scott Rasmussen, my good friend, great pollster, and there it shows a massive disconnect between Joe Biden and Anthony Fauci as the big government solution to pa- a pandemic, and the rest of Americans. And here's what it says: Here are the two major findings. Most Americans. The vast majority of Americans fear that the worst of the pandemic is ahead of us, not behind us. That is a 29-point swing from the uh, the summer when Joe Biden declared that it was over. Um, But at the same time, they're saying that, hey, we know rough waters are still ahead of us. Uh, a, A majority want no more strict restrictions. They want the government to stop it and let them manage their own risk as people. We'll make our decisions. 60% of people, I think, said that they're comfortable going mask in in in, uh, public places. Now, uh, they don't want mandates. Let us make our decision. So the American people know that, well, we probably haven't conquered this because we've had three or four waves. But you know what? The way the government's dealt with it is not the way I want to deal with it anymore. I want to go out, live my life, manage my risk, and we'll get through this like my ancestors did with the Spanish flu and like uh, we did with polio and other things. The fact that the American people are there is a very good sign. The fact that their government hasn't caught up, well, that's what elections about. Elections tend to correct those things. And Joe Biden is now at, you know, depending where you look at, somewhere between thirty-six and forty-one percent approval. We've never had a president in his first year that low. He has to be reading the tea leaves, and I think this week he blinked when he said, and I don't believe this was an accident when he said, "There's no federal solution." He doubled down where Donald Trump was and said, "I'm going to get states' a crack at this." He's reading those poll numbers right now.
0: I agree with you because he said that during the governor's conference call on Monday. Um, yeah. and, but at the same time, we do have governors who, in fact, are buying the Kool-Aid of the the, the Fauci show that we yeah. and they're getting they're getting federal funds. Sure, and it's, it's a trickle down, you know, through the departments uh, and the agencies on the state level, which goes down to the county level. I mean, they're spending trillions of dollars to 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 set this all up. Sure, um, on the local level. So California
1: entered the pandemic with a budget deficit. Now it has seventy billion dollars of extra money. Most of that's the federal government. Uh right. There are people that clearly got their hands paid pretty well, and that's why they stick with the Fauci line. I think the 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 middle America states, the Midwest, the swing states, the Floridas, the Texases of the world, they've moved far away from Fauci, and they're going to take into their own hands more more often a state's rights approach, which is even if Biden doesn't back off, he says he's going to back off. But if he doesn't, they're going to use the courts and other uh, tactics to do so. You have Ron DeSantis saying, I'm going to build my own state militia because I don't trust uh, the Pentagon's uh, management of my National Guard. You've got that going on in Texas now as well. And you got seven Republican governors in the last week alone saying, uh, I will not abide by uh, Secretary Austin's vaccine mandate it puts my national guard troops at risk i'm not going to do it um that is an extraordinary movement of states rights and is i think what our founding fathers intended when they created the whole concept of federalism
0: i agree with you on that and i think that we're seeing the numbers increase over time Um, what what about the military that's being you know that's being let go They're basically saying you're refusing to take the shots. You're out of here. You know, maybe it's dishonorable discharge. Or the people who have until January or March, if they don't take the vaccine by their corporate deadline, they're out of a job. I heard a story a couple of weeks ago locally, and this was a man whose wife had refused to take the vaccine shots for medical reasons, even though they didn't accept her medical uh, exemption. And then she went to, she had a stellar uh, reputation professionally. She applied for unemployment, uh, and she was refused because they went back to her prior employer who fired her, who basically said she was insubordinate, and, and hence she was denied unemployment.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, I, some, some of these policies, I sit back and I think to myself, who's at the table making these policies that doesn't have the foresight So to think about the trickle-down effect it has on families.
1: Yeah, and and, and funny, uh, uh, under an administration that spent all last year campaigning on the idea that they were for the middle class and for families, yet their policies haven't been there, whether it's increasing the cost of gas, not addressing inflation before it got to runaway status like it is now. Uh, This has been an anti-family administration and government approach from a president who spoke all last year about he was going to be the middle class family man for America. There's a disconnect, and that's why his ratings are so low. I think when you look back, the, the biggest consequence, we're not in the middle of a big war right now. Now, God forbid, if something happened in Russia or Taiwan, Ukraine, we, we'd feel the impact This the main services won't feel the impact of losing several thousand soldiers right away because we're not in a wartime footing right now with the withdrawals from Afghanistan and Iraq. But the place where it will be instantly felt is in the special operators community. So you're going to lose several hundred, if not several thousand Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Army Rangers, and Marine Special Operators. Our military relies on them more and more every day to do things that we don't even hear about. We find out, oh, someone got droned and, well, how'd that happen? Well, because some special guys and special women did some special missions. There is going to be a drain there, and that's going to be the first place where you're going to see the consequences. Well, it's also
2: possibly a... um Targeting, you know, the more conservative because they knew they wouldn't take the Vax. So yeah, it's a,
1: it's a way to crack down on white supremacists and tattoos. I read something the other day that they're even yeah. vetting members' tattoos. I mean, where's this going to go? Um, uh, but you know, there's a dual effect here. One is you lose some very highly trained, incredible personnel. The special operators often cost a half million, a million dollars each to train. They have skill yeah. sets unlike anything else in the military. They've been deployed six, seven, eight, nine times, many times, so they paid the ultimate sacrifice. You're going to lose a skill set and you're going to create a demoralization of the military at a moment when it least needs it. Uh, I think at some point uh, the pain will get to great. And if you look at Joe Biden's record, every time he got to the deadline on one of these mandates, he's backed off, federal contractors, nurses. Um, uh, and I think everybody's waiting to see how will the Supreme Court rule in the business private sector case. If the Supreme Court sends a message to the Biden administration, we're not going to stand by that private sector mandate. Uh, mm-hmm. There could be some rethinking in Washington when, when all that happens. And that but, case is just a few days away.
2: I saw the boosters were not; they were recommended but not authorized yeah. or I in the military. That's so an important sign a signal. Yeah. <clears throat> Good point are out. you
0: are you hearing uh, are you hearing any um, anybody talking about the power of the pharmaceutical? medical, I mean, the Pharmaceutical Manufacturing Association and the elephant in the room, because I noticed, and I attended Ron Johnson's September roundtable with Vax injured, and and there were some lawyers and a whistleblower there, and Senator Johnson was the only person that was in the room. Um, They invited the CEOs of uh, Pfizer, Moderna and and J&J. They invited Fauci and, 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 you know, the alphabet soup agency heads. Nobody showed up. Um, the press, <laughs> including media, yeah, sadly. But but I was in the room, and I I was struck by that Senator Johnson never mentioned the, far, the To me, the elephant in the room, and maybe it's yeah. like my age, but I mean, the Pharmaceutical Manufacturing Association, now called the Pharmaceutical Manufacturing and Research Association, right, right, is 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 the is a the powerful they powerful association, trade association in D.C. They spent 320 <coughs> million
1: me, thinking, guys, dollars. I okay. Sorry, I nailed wrong.
0: They spent 325 million dollars yeah. in D.C. alone in 2020.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Listen, Pharma makes its money on new drugs, not on uh, generics or old drugs in the marketplace. So the market force for them is let's create new drugs. What they have found in Anthony Fauci as the head of NID is a guy that loves new vaccines, loves new drugs and often as hostile to even considering whether old drugs in the marketplace might work. And so I think this dynamic isn't just big pharma. Big pharma wouldn't get away with it if there wasn't a mindset at NIH, NIAID to try to create everything new rather than consider the possibility that things that are on the shelf, things that are therapeutics that we've used for years that might uh, address some of the, the symptoms that we saw early in COVID, like the keto storm. The biggest problem in America, and I think the biggest reset that America could have in the COVID pandemic, or quite frankly, in the larger medicine world, is for Anthony Fauci to step aside because he's created a mentality, new drug, new vaccine, that's the only way we can solve things. And he spent three decades trying to find an AIDS vaccine. We don't have one. And in the meantime, other people stepped into the void, found therapeutics, and got AIDS uh, under control in a way that we couldn't have imagined in 1990 or 1995. Uh, Fauci has created the philosophy, and it plays into the uh, big pharma's hands. But if he weren't there, if there was someone who was more willing to consider different solutions, whether it's new medicine, old medicine, uh, I don't think pharma would have the challenges or the perception or the anger that a lot of Americans hold towards it today.
0: Well, I'm not going to let you get off this show without you talking about Fauci and Fauci's making money (laughs) off of patents. Because, John, th- and this goes back to, what, 2005? You, yeah. you did some of the first investigative reporting on Fauci and, and NIAID, making money, Fauci and some of his employees making $150,000 a year off of yeah. new drugs. And, and I don't know whether it's vaccines at that point in, p- point in time. But yeah. explain to the audience some of that history, because I know that in Bobby Kennedy's new book, I mean, he gets into the history of Fauci. But a he lot of it's early, early reporting on that
1: yeah so i uh had done a lot of whistleblower work in the in the early 2000s and uh, got to know some whistleblower lawyers and uh after writing five or six stories other whistleblowers come to you and so uh in the uh spring and summer of 2004 2005 i was approached by a whistleblower by the name of jonathan Fishbein, who at that moment was the brand new director of ethics and safety at Anthony fauci's niad the infectious disease arm of nih mm-hmm. and he came to me and said listen Um, I love what NIH does. I believe in the mission, but we're not following our own safety protocols. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, well, (laughs) some of these AIDS experiments uh, are just not following. We, we, we signed the documents that we're going to follow these rules and then we don't follow them because Anthony Fauci and and Cliff Lane and other people, they do what they want to do. They don't monitor the scientists downstream for them they're too clubby with uh, the scientists and they don't really regulate them or put a, a thing. And so I started to dig in and sure as heck uh, through FOIAs and through documents and with the help of Senator Grassley at that time, we were able to get a really substantial body of documents showing that what Jonathan Fishbein said was true. Then Jonathan Fishbein got fired by right. NIH under contrived circumstances. He won. He sued. He won. He got restored. He did the right thing. And and you get cases. And the case that stands out to me more, I mean, I can pick five or six of them, but the one that Robert F. Kennedy picks up in his book and the one that I think more than any other story I wrote about Fauci was the one I wrote in 2005, which was they needed to test AIDS drugs on children. Uh, and they had plenty of children who had HIV and they could test those because parents would want to get access, but mm-hmm. they needed a control group. They needed... Children who didn't have AIDS, didn't have HIV, so they can test the drugs and have a control group because that's important to A-B science, you know. Uh, And so they couldn't get a a normal parent because once a normal parent sees all the side effects of the drug, I'm not putting my kid through that. Mm -hmm. So what did he do? He went, uh, Anthony Fauci and his team went to the New York City Welfare Department and said, hey, give us access to um, to your foster children, kids who didn't have parents or were separated from their parents at the very least. And uh, and really targeted a vulnerable population where there was no parent to say no. And the city took it because it got money. And then Anthony Fauci and his team said, listen, here's what we're going to do. I know this is a vulnerable population. We want to be careful. This is a little dodgy. So right. every child is going to get their own personal medical advocate that we pay for at NIH. Well, that never happened. And these children were subjected to drugs that had very strong toxic side effects Um, I think maybe there were reports of one or two deaths, but certainly a lot of kids had adverse reactions, as you would expect, particularly not HIV positive, getting HIV drugs. And we exposed it, and it ran, you know, it shook the earth for a few days. And then from that, we started to go and say, well, listen, uh, who's signing on these um, patents? Well, wait a second, the patent holder isn't the United States government. It's Anthony Fauci, the uh, the researcher, or researcher F or Z or A. Why are we, the American people, paying for these drugs and these experiments? And then the royalties would go to the researcher to their private uh, chest. And so we exposed that. And that became a big change. In fact, uh, laws and regulatory changes were made to prevent some of that from going on. But Fauci created this culture. And he was basically whatever, you know, he said it the other day in this interview, right? I am science, right? Basically, that's what he said. Mm -hmm. That was his philosophy. If I say it's okay it's okay. If I say we should have children protected by uh, a a third-party vendor and I don't provide the party vendor, it's okay because I said it's okay. I'm trying to solve the world's problems. Leave me alone. And that philosophy is what's permeated NIH for three decades, and it's why we ended up with the Fishbine scandal back in 2005. And there was a moment where the Bush White House was going to jettison Fauci. They were fed up with enough of this, and particularly with the foster child story. And uh, at the last minute, President Bush took a pass, and I think that decision is far more fateful today, realizing all the mistakes and blunders and reversals that Tony Fauci has made on COVID-19.
0: I had heard back then that one of the reasons why the Bush administration put a pause on that was because uh, that that orphanage in, in, uh, in New York because it was connected to the diocese, to the Catholic diocese, yeah. uh, you know, at the time. I mean, and was- heard
1: that, but listen, whatever the case is, it was a miscalculation because absolutely we left the guy in charge. That we gave him billions more dollars to prepare for a pandemic because George W. Bush started the pandemic preparations to his credit. Uh, Obama took them seriously and developed out, but none of the plans that were in the playbook we actually used when the biggest pandemic in world history struck us, um, uh, you can't have a guy that can't execute his own playbook. Uh, mm-hmm. We did the opposite. The playbook said, protect the vulnerable and mitigate the risk for everybody else. We sent the vulnerable to nursing homes with COVID and and, and caused great mass death in those homes earlier days. And then we locked down the healthy people. We did the opposite of the playbook that we paid Anthony Fauci billions to develop.
2: How does so, he get accountability?
1: Right. Uh, a job change, a retirement. He should, I think, his $350,000 uh, pension might be a good investment for the American people, it might actually save us some money. Yeah. Yeah. We just need a fresh set of eyes there. I listen, I've met and I've sat across from Anthony Fauci. I don't think he's a man who intends to do wrong, I think he believes he's doing the right thing, but his, he's been there too long. Anyone who's been at a job 40, 45 years doesn't have the same fresh eyes. America needs fresh eyes in some of these new NIH jobs. Uh, uh, his boss at NIH is now gone, and we'll see if Fauci uh, steps aside in the next year or so. I think fresh blood will be the best thing that happened to America in those jobs.
0: And his wife, Christine Grady, would have to go over to NIH because she's been at NIH for a long period of time yeah. with
1: Again, another thing that just showed that there's no – any in any other institution, you wouldn't let a wife oversee the ethics decisions of their husband. But at NIH, that's been the cozy way it was, and those are what? some of the things that that um, you know Jonathan Pishbein first uh, flagged back in 2004 and 2005. There was a philosophy that this wasn't the government's NIH. This was Anthony Fauci's NIH, and good and bad, and I'm sure he's given a lot of work. He's tried very hard to solve some of the world's scourges. Uh, he left behind a very, he leaves behind or overseas an extraordinarily dysfunctional bureaucracy that really let us down on COVID-19.
2: What about the um, the revolving door with pharma and the federal agencies and the ability of these guys to make money off the drugs they push on the American people? Listen,
1: that that infects every part of the government, whether it's the military going in and out, FBI agents going to the Mm The contractors that they used to supervise. The revolving door is still the way that uh, bureaucrats get rich in Washington. And despite all the lip service, I've been here 34 years, there's been no a lot of lip service and not a single meaningful uh, reform to stop that. Just like there hasn't been a single meaningful reform to stop lawmakers who have inside information from insider trading on their stocks. You see that every day. We saw it with Richard Burr, the Intelligence Committee chairman. Um, these are the reason they don't stop is that the people who have the ability to stop them have the greatest incentive to keep it going because they get rich. It's real in pharma. It's real in the military. It's real in the FBI. And uh, it's real in the EPA. Pick any place where there's a contracting beltway business. Uh, the, the, the revolving door is bad. It's been highlighted. It's just uh, the people who have the power have the incentive to keep the system the way it is.
0: Do you think that Trump, President Trump, successfully exposed the swamp larger than he ever thought?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, I think listen, I think he fought it, uh, but I think he placed. I think history will show, facts will show, he placed too much trust in swamp creatures, people. I mean, he. I, I know today what he thinks about Jeff Sessions and what he thought about Rod Rosenstein, but he picked them, and I mm-hmm. think if you look, the first two or three years of the Trump presidency was. Uh, Policies that were very popular and in some cases had tremendous effect on the economy, but they were hampered. His success record was hampered by the personnel decisions he made. He was was a policy popular president who made bad HR decisions uh, with the people he put in place. And it really wasn't until his last year that he got a team that started to rally around his thing. And you saw some in 2020, he was making some progress, whether it was rolling back The bogus Russia collusion story, or getting things done with China, Uh, but you know he lost three of the first four years with people who were incompetent or not truly aligned to his policies. I think if he were to come back and run in twenty twenty four and win, he's learned that lesson. And and uh, but uh, I think he could have achieved a lot more. He achieved a lot, but he could have achieved a lot more had he made better HR decisions.
0: Do you think that that his idea of having the new Trump media that uh, Congress former Congressman Nunes is going to run do you think that's a good idea in, in terms of anything he decides for 2024?
1: Listen, whether it benefits him personally or not, I, I don't know a lot of the things he got into end, end up coming at great personal cost to himself whether it's his legal bills or his daughter having to close down one of her businesses because of all the controversy. Being in the limelight for Donald Trump has been a negative economic thing personally. I do think that something uh, that in this era that where we started this conversation with cancel culture and, and censorship, <laughs> yeah. competition is the way that we've always solved these problems in America. and Donald Trump is well funded at a billion dollars spec to create a competition that might be the first real threat to Twitter and Facebook. But it's all about the execution now. They got to execute and create a product that one people like, that two is stable, that three can't be canceled by big tech. and you know history will tell us whether he pulls that off or not. but, the idea that there would be a competitor to Twitter that is as well funded and maybe as well resourced, meaning humans come to it in large numbers, I think that that's good for America. Competition always makes America stronger. So we'll have to see whether the execution can follow the promise. But a billion dollars is a lot of money. You can create a very strong tech company and create a very big solution. And the one thing that Donald Trump can do, if they make a great product, He's the only person in America that I know right now that could move 10, 20 or 30 million and say, listen, everybody shut down your Twitter account tomorrow and move over here and they might actually happen. No one else yeah. in America has that marketing swag right now.
0: Well, he, he does have the salesman swag and he's had it for decades, even, even yeah. before he built the Trump Tower. I mean, he's, he knows how to, as he always believed, it didn't matter whether you had good or bad publicity yeah. as long as you had publicity.
1: Nunez is a, a fascinating pick for him, too, because he's a get-it-done sort of guy, and and uh, he's very strategic in the way he looks at things. He's not a guy that comes from the tech world, so he's not all about the whiz-bang and all that stuff. I think you're going to see Devin Nunez try to create a very – Basic service that is rock solid that you just can trust, you know, and that's all people want. Listen, if Parler had stuck around, Parler was up to 10 or 15 million people, it was becoming a threat to Twitter, but it was built on platforms that could easily be censored. It didn't follow its own uh, enforcement rules properly and it killed itself. If, if I think Devin Nunes will go in the same way he approached the Russia collusion investigation, which is bare bones smart, just get the, the engine of the car right, and we'll take care of the whiz bang later. We can take care of the fancy windshields and, and license plate lights later. Let's just get a car that runs reliably 24-7, can't be hacked, can't be canceled. If Devin Nunes does that and you combine that with Donald Trump's marketing prowess, Twitter and Facebook for the first time in their existence could be facing real competition.
0: So before we close out, I can't, I, I, I've got to bring up Ukraine because you two gentlemen have covered Ukraine. I mean, Todd, you've done it for a long time, John, you've done it. So, I mean, today was the Putin, President Biden conversation. Um, What do you guys take away from um, whatever these two talked about in terms of, in terms of Ukraine and just the Russia, America stand? I'd love to hear what Todd has to say. I I, I have some thoughts about I, I think
2: the Ukraine thing was never, I think it was blown way out of proportion in order to take the eye off China and off the Biden administration's problems. There's no way Russia will invade Ukraine. They will keep lobbing artillery shells in Donbass, but they won't invade to Kiev because that's a huge cost that Putin can't absorb at this point. And uh, I do think he has a point with NATO encroachment. I think it's stupid, um, but that's you know my view of the world. What do you think, John? Well, listen, I I
1: had the chance to, back in 2012, 2013, 2014, really to spend some time with some of the Russian foreign policy mm-hmm. thinkers. Uh, when I was at a newspaper that was very anti-Putin, I was at The Washington <laughs> Times, the, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, but they true. have a very strong uh, belief, which is they really don't see this as a global struggle between the United States and Russia they only care about their own backyard, and exactly. the closer you get to their backyard, the more defensive they become. That's what 2008 in Georgia was about. It's what 2014 in uh, Ukraine was about. Which is rational,
2: about. a rational decision. I
1: think. Yeah, and 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 it's and almost always they justify it with there's a minority of Russians in this community. We have to go protect right. our own
2: citizens. They right. they they're,
1: uh, they're, they can't make that argument in Kiev, and I think most of the military thinkers I have talked to forget the ones that are blabbing on TV, but the ones that really have the intel. They don't think they think Putin is. This is about Putin uh, puffing up his credentials with the Russian people to get over some of the economic woes. No yeah. chance he goes in there, and I don't think we do either. the uh, The encroachment thing is something we've been playing this dance for thirty years in the Cold War, and we're still in a sort of Cold War posture there. The bigger question is that uh, people misses it. Ukraine mm-hmm. is the giant piggy bank of democratic interests. There are so many Completely. liberal democratic interests in Ukraine.
2: It's, it's state capture by division. Soros.
1: Yeah, George yeah. Soros, uh, mm-hmm. Victor Pinchuk, who was one of the biggest funders of the Clinton Foundation. Democrats have a lot of political and personal interest in Ukraine that sometimes colors it. And I do believe all the pushback that I got when I did the Hunter Biden stories, which now today clearly were 100% accurate. never was in doubt. Yeah. Uh, was more about protecting the Democratic constituencies that might get rolled up if we dug a little further. We're going to have a big story early next year. So right after the new year, uh, we've won some new documents under a FOIA lawsuit. We're going to put them out in January. It's going to unravel one of the amazing tales that uh, Adam Schiff gave us during the Ukraine impeachment. It's going to blow away one of the main storylines that Joe Biden, Adam Schiff, and the gang gave us. And uh, that's one of the things we can continue to do. We keep getting facts. Facts are a stubborn thing. I will educate the American people, and I think uh, we'll be smarter in 2022 from some of these lawsuits we filed.
0: I think I think it actually has. Um, I think all this, and I just call it insanity. Uh, all this insanity has, in fact, sharpened some of, some of us who are real investigative journalists, because I mean we, we have to hone in to really say, okay, fine, what is done under normal circumstances? What's not done now? And what do we have to do to prove this? And and I think that, I mean, it, it, to me, that that's the upside going into 2022. But then I worry about where people are getting their news, you know, and I and I just I, I hope that uh, Congressman Nunes sees the value of that when he goes forward with this this Trump media um, enterprise, because if you don't have the people that are in the game that are serious about it and know how to play hardball, you're not going to take it over the goal line. Yeah,
1: such a great point, Christine. I could agree. Competition is going to be the key to this. I mean, the American marketplace has always worked best best when we compete, and, and, and rather than complain, whine, or look for a government intervention, we create equal and opposite powerful institutions. That's what you guys have done. That's what I'm trying to do at Just the News. I think 2022, 2022 is going to be a very good year for truth. I think you're going to see some self-correction, but it requires all of us in these new media businesses to succeed in getting the truth out. Uh, don't fall prey to tricks, and just get good stories out there with facts, and build the trust of the American people back in journalism. Journalism is still a great institution; it just hasn't been practiced well for a long time.
0: No, it has, and I think the cross uh, collaboration, I, like we did in the last twenty-four hours over the Maxwell. Um, oh yeah, you know, so great stuff like that. I, th- I think I think that that's really important because sure. very much like every people in the mainstream press that carries the narratives that are false, they stick with it as if they belong to. Sort of like the boy and the girl scouts with falsehoods.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. No, I think there's strength in numbers and strength in collaboration. Great journalism has always been based on collaboration. I remember when I was at the Washington Post and we did these great projects with 60 Minutes that had tremendous uh, impact. And, and I right. think that these cross collaborations are going to make a big difference.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Todd, do you want to add anything? And John, anything before we go, guys?
2: No, appreciate it, John. Thank you for your time. Yeah, yeah and congratulations. John, thank you. On all I mean, you guys Happy New Year.
0: And, as well, um, and we will see you in the new year. Thank you. Sounds great. Okay. okay.